0: So this is a reading from the Gospel according to Mark. As they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. The Gospel of the Lord. When I was about probably between the ages of 10 and thirteen. So this is just like eight years ago. <laughs> Alright, twenty years. I had this mild obsession with baseball. The town that I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, was obsessed with baseball. And we actually had a few guys who actually made it to the major leagues from our town. So our town that I grew up in lived and breathed baseball. And in my backyard, in my house, almost every single day, I would be outside throwing, pitching against the wall. And I, I drew on the wall like a home plate and a batter, and it was very real and very vivid. And in my imagination, I would always pretend like it was the World Series, right? It was like game seven of the World Series, and I was pitching, and you know, it was like bases were loaded. It was just the ultimate scenario. And when I was imagining this, pitching, throwing against the wall, I was also like the announcer, calling the game, right? I was also trash-talking the battery who was up against the player. So I didn't have, like, I had multiple personalities. (laughs) And, of course, when I imagined the World Series, we always won, right? And when we won... I would start to celebrate. I imagined all of my teammates running up to me and uh, tackling me and you know dumping the water cooler on me. And I had this wonderful, vivid imagination of all of these things happening. But somewhere along the line, probably when I turned about 14 or 15, I became a bit self-conscious. And I started to think, what are other people going to think when they see me yelling in my backyard? (laughs) (laughs) What are my neighbors gonna think when they see me like trash-talking a wall, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I began to think, you know, is this how a 15-year-old is supposed to act? And so I stopped playing baseball, not only in my backyard, but also for the the different teams that I were on, right? Not because I didn't like baseball anymore, but because I retreated into my mind, right? Which I think is something we all do. And this is why I believe that children tend to be the happiest group of people by and large, in the world. You know, I've met so many different kinds of people from different ethnicities, races, cultures, and it seems like across the board, children tend to be the happiest group of people, right? (laughs) And why is that? I think it's because unlike us, they're not stuck in their mind. Right? What I like to call sometimes just our thinking mind, children tend to be by nature much more free right much more curious, much more filled with wonder and awe than us mature adults you know a couple weeks ago, I was saying mass in the parish and it was it was just a, a daily mass and in, like, the third row was, was a mom and her, her son, who I'm guessing was probably maybe seven years old. And I was giving a homily, and all of a sudden, this little boy shouts to his mom, who's right next to him. She said, he says, Mom, who is that man on the window? And it was a, it was a stained glass window of St. Francis, right? And this mother was mortified that her child would, like, speak, interrupt my homily, right? And after, um, after mass, she comes running up to me and and apologizing. And, you know, I said there were, um, I said there's, there's no reason at all to apologize, you know, it was actually, what I loved about that is for that kid, that painting of Saint Francis was a greater sermon on the mystery of God than anything I certainly could ever say, For that kid, that painting drew him in to the mystery, to the wonder, and to the beauty of God because that kid was, in a sense, out of his mind, right? Most adults pass that window every day without any concern, without any recognition of who that is. You know, and if you would ask probably the majority of the parishioners, who is that saying on the second stained glass window? No idea. Right? But children tend to be more aware. They tend to be more aware of the mystery of life. And so, in a sense, better in tune to the presence of God. And most of us adults, like I was saying, we live on this level of our thinking minds right which is which means that we live on this level of our thoughts and of our senses right very rarely do we ever go beyond them right and what that means is that reality is just what i see before me right which is so limiting right oftentimes in the face of a tragedy, whether it's something global like Hurricane Harvey or something personal, maybe somebody dying, oftentimes people will stand in front of this tragedy and they will see no sign of God's presence, right? How can God allow this? How can God allow that? And so their conclusion is there's no God because They're living, they're making this conclusion based upon their thoughts, based upon maybe what their senses are telling them or their emotions. How often does someone conclude, maybe if somebody, I don't know, fails a test in school, right? Or maybe loses a job or makes some other just human mistake. Oftentimes we conclude, I'm a failure because of this right? and what's the problem with, with these conclusions the problem is it's an interpretation of reality based on one's thoughts on one's senses right? isn't there more to life than just what I can see than just what I can think right? I certainly hope so because if not, life is very small. I don't want to give a huge philosophical discourse here, but in the, in the 15th century, which I'm sure many of you know, there was a, a philosopher by the name of, of Descartes. And whoever says that words don't have any power is a fool. Because this philosopher literally changed the whole course philosophy with one sentence. This philosopher, Descartes, was trying to think of a way, how can I prove that I exist? He was trying to come up with this way to prove that I'm actually real, that this isn't a dream. And his conclusion was the fact that he's thinking proved to him that he existed. And so he came up with this famous line. He says, I think therefore, I am. I'm sure you've probably heard that before. And you might think, what is the danger with that statement, right? I think, therefore, I am. The danger with that is that we equate our identity with our thinking, right? If the only way I know that I exist, because I'm thinking. And basically I'm saying, we are what we think. And if that's true, then God help us. (laughs) Right? And the truth is, for most of us, this is the way we live our lives. Right? We identify ourselves with our thoughts. And we also identify ourselves with other people's thoughts about us. And this, my friends, is a sinking ship. (laughs) There is no light in this uh, framework, in this mentality. If all we are are our thoughts or other people's thoughts about us, it's a very sad life. St. Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says these beautiful words. He's talking about his experience as a disciple. And this is what he says. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. And he says, we do not lose heart. And my question is, how do you not lose heart? I'm almost losing heart reading those words. (laughs) (laughs) What is your secret, St. Paul? And this is what he says. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, Paul is saying that I, all of us, have to go beyond just our thinking mind, just our thoughts. Because our thoughts are mostly concerned with the things. That are transient, the things that are passing away. Whereas the things of God are eternal, and in this life, for the most part, they're unseen. Right? Nor are they things that our minds can fully grasp by any by by no means. And you know, this is in no way. We're not downplaying the use of, of like reason, uh, logical thinking, all of those necessary skills that we need in life. But what it is doing, I believe, is putting those things in their proper perspective, which is essentially that they're limited. And so the contemplative mind, the way I understand it, is essentially a child-like mind. Not a childish mind, right? Big difference. <laughs> but a child-like mind. Or another way of phrasing it is almost a beginner's mind, right? Somebody who begins something new is opened to the many possibilities of what this experience can bring forth. Right? What does Jesus say in the gospel that I read? It is to such the childlike that belong the kingdom of God, right? And so, what is this contemplative mind like? And it is, I believe, it's a, it's a mind that faces life and it faces God with humility, with curiosity, with wonder and amazement. The way that child was drawn into that stained glass window of St. Francis. It is a mind that is not fixed, that is not set, but is it a mind that is open to being surprised. You know, I think this is a great question for all of us to ask ourselves, but how many of us tell God what to do, right? (laughs) And we call that prayer. And at the end we say, if it's your will, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> usually it's God, I want this to happen now, with this person, this situation, this ministry, whatever it might be, because I've concluded this is the best way for it to work. right? Well, if we approach God like that, if we approach life like that, we're going to be endlessly frustrated. Because God's ways are so much bigger than what we can see, right? So much bigger than what just our thinking minds can sort of come up with. This contemplative mind is a mind that is receptive and not grasping. This is the disposition, I believe, of Our Lady. She received life. She didn't grasp at life, right? It's a mind that is selfless, and not selfish. And this next part, I think, is very frustrating, especially for men. The contemplative mind is a mind that is aware and accepts its own limitations and everybody else's. But it's also aware of God's boundless and infinite love that permeates all that is. Chances are, by the end of today, I'm not going to be perfect. And probably you won't either. And yet God's love and God's presence will be there. Guaranteed. You know, the psalmist says that the heavens are telling the glory of God. And the firmament proclaims his handiwork. This beautiful poetic description of how God's presence and love sustains all that is. And so, before the reality of God, anybody who calls themselves an expert is a fool. Not only do they not know God, but they don't know themselves. St. John of the Cross, in his, one of his great works, The Spiritual Canticle, he says that one of the most outstanding favors God can give a person. So, in other words, one of the greatest gifts God could give you or me is an understanding or an experience of God that is so great that we come to realize I'll never be able to understand God completely. It seems like something different. Like oftentimes we think, well, a great experience of God will be one like Moses at the burning bush, right? where I can see this phenomenon happening before my eyes. And yet St. John of the Cross says that the greatest, in a sense, grace you can be given is an experience of God that is so great, that is so grand, that you realize God is not someone that you can just put your arms around and figure out. God is not someone you can just sort of grasp and put on your shelf and say, oh, I have him, right? And it's interesting because he says that those who have experienced God in this way, so this experience of God that is so great, he refers to it as, I don't know what. <laughs> this is a major theologian here. St. <laughs> John of the Cross is a doctor of the church. And this is the, this is the best our language can do. <laughs> I don't know what. And he has a, uh, has a whole poem dedicated to this reality. He talks about, the, in, this, in this poem of St. John of the Cross, the, the, cor- the chorus, the refrain after every stanza is experiencing I don't know what experiencing I don't know what. And we might look. We, might, we could look at that and say, well, it's kind of like clumsy English. Can't you come up with something better? I mean, you're a poet, you're a theologian. And I think that's one of the best, most beautiful descriptions, such down to earth, because I don't know what to call it. I don't know what to call this experience. It's something so profound that it's it's reduced all of my nice words, all of my nice language, all of my nice theology to... I don't know what. And you know, what does this I don't know what mean? Well, we're not speaking about total ignorance, right? If you asked me about calculus or speaking Russian, <laughs> I would say, I don't know what, and I would mean total ignorance. <laughs> if you ask me about a lot of things, I would say, I don't know what, meaning I, there's no comprehension at all. But that's not what John of the Cross is saying. This I don't know what of St. John of the Cross, I believe, is a humble acknowledgement that we are surrounded mystery right and that God is too beautiful God is too big to be contained by our words and even by our concepts think about this what are the majority of songs about on the radio hold on don't answer (laughs) that But that's the right answer. What, are the major- what is the majority of poetry written about? What is the majority of literature about? Paula, what's the answer? <laughs> love. <laughs> and yet, not one of those songs, or one of those poems or stories, completely captures the essence of love. Why is that? Because love is a mystery beyond words. right? So right now there could be a song about love that touches us so deeply and we might think, oh this says it all. And then three months from now another song comes out about love. Oh this is it. And then three months later and then a new book or a new movie. This will go on until eternity because love is a boundless mystery that we can never grasp just like God who is love, right? If someone were to say to me, I understand love, I would doubt if that person is really in love, right? I think this is why St. Augustine once said, again, another doctor of the church, who says, if it's God you think you understand, it is most likely God that you do not understand. And so I think for the contemplative mind that we're reflecting on today, God is a beautiful mystery. What is a mystery? Well, the dictionary says that a mystery is a religious truth that man can know by revelation alone but cannot fully understand. It doesn't mean that there's nothing we can say or know about God. God has revealed himself to us fully in Jesus. But it means that we can't fully get our minds or our hands around God, ever. In some sense, God is like the air, completely available, completely accessible, Once you try to grasp at it, it's gone. Right? We had a beautiful reading today from Mass, from from the letter of the Romans, where Paul, I think, is reflecting on the mystery of God. And what did he say? He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable are His ways. This is the great Saint Paul who probably unlike, maybe unlike anyone else, had such a deep, intimate experience of Christ. And as he's trying to reflect on this, what does he say? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. In other words, Paul is saying, God is beyond me, but yet also very near to me. This is important, I believe, because in the spiritual life, especially when we're young in it, we oftentimes want to achieve something. In some sense, we want to collect, I believe, spiritual trophies right, to show other people, to convince other people how holy I am, how Christian I am. You know, look, I've read these books, right? I've went on these retreats. I've listened to these podcasts. I know young. So I must be be a very serious Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a... As if those things themselves are what makes us good Christians, right? Those things are very helpful and AIDS, but they're not what makes us good Christians. When I was a postulant 15 years ago, I, I'd write letters to some of my friends. And looking back at those letters, I hope they burn those letters. <laughs> <laughs> not that I would ever, not that my cause for canonization would ever happen, but if everyone ever read those letters, it would be cut off. <laughs> because those letters were filled with so much arrogance, so much self-righteousness, And so much of my own ego. (laughs) Because in those letters, I would always talk about all the great things we were doing as friars. How, like, hardcore our life was. Mm -hmm. How, like, poor we were. And I completely missed the whole point. (laughs) Instead of it reducing my ego, it was increasing my ego. Because I was trying to have these spiritual trophies to say, look how good of a Christian I am. Like the, like the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I say all my prayers. I do what I'm supposed to do. What does Jesus say to him? You're out. This poor, this poor sinner, this poor tax collector is the one who goes home justified. Right? And so, what is Jesus? what is there really to achieve in the spiritual life? Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Abide in me. Abide in me. In other words, stay with me. Hide yourself in me. Remain with me. Not grasping at life. Not trying to make things happen the way you think is best. But remaining in this loving receptivity to God. Which is the essence of deep prayer? Being receptive to God. And I mentioned this, this parable just a few moments ago, but I think, again, in the beginning, prayer for us, oftentimes, we are like that tax, that tax collector in the parable, beating our breasts and saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. But over time, as we experience that mercy in our lives, we become like Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Our very hearts are transformed to the wonder and to the grace of God because we've experienced that mercy so profoundly, we can't understand it fully, but we can surrender to it. And that's what Mary is doing, I believe, at the feet of Jesus. She's sitting at his feet, listening to him. The reason I believe she's doing that is because she knows that God and our lives... They're not problems that our thinking minds have to solve. But they are mysteries that we are called to surrender to. We are called to love. And that we are called to embrace. When St. Francis is dying, he says to the brothers who are around him, he says, let us begin again For up until now, we have done nothing. If you know anything about St. Francis, you could ask yourself, how in the world could he say something like that? This man spent his whole life walking across Europe preaching the gospel, caring for the poor, for the lepers, spending months in hermitage alone with God, weeping and doing penance for people who ignored God, how could he say he did nothing? I think the answer is because St. Francis was always a beginner. He had this childlike, this contemplative mind where he never tried to conquer God where he never tried to control God, but that he always approached God with humility, with reverence, and with awe. And this, I believe, is the contemplative way. It is, in a sense, the contemplative mind. And if we can let go of maybe the way we think think things should be, or the way we think God should answer our prayers, our requests, even our desires, if we can let go of that and surrender to the mystery of God and trust that He has something much greater than I can see or even fathom, we can let go and really trust Him, it is then, I believe, where we come to such a deeper and more mature Faith. Because as St. Paul said, it is a faith based on things that are, yes, unseen in this world, but that carry on into eternity. And so, therefore, that is the true, in a sense, house where Jesus says, when you build your house on a rock, when the winds come and the storms come, that house can't be shaken because it's built on something that is firm, on something that is real, on something that is strong. This mystery of God that we'll never be able to grasp completely, that we're called to trust, to surrender to. Amen.